Hey, my fellow monkeys, what's up? Old Uncle Silver back here with you on the Armed Ape Podcast, the show where we review and talk about everything from guns, gear, and movies to life in general. Nothing is ever out of bounds. As always, everything we talk about has the end goal of making our lives better by cutting through all the marketing BS using logic, reason, and honest discussions. I look forward to hearing from you soon and to your participation in the show. Well, hey, everybody, what's going on? It's been a while since I've put out a show. Today is Friday. It's the 24th of June, 2022. I'm going to be doing something a little bit different in that usually what I'll do is I'll watch a movie, take some notes, and then when I do my review kind of have all my thoughts together and everything, but I've had, usually I've had some time to think about it. Usually I'm not just sort of jumping right in, but on today's show, I'm going to be reviewing, I believe it was in 1979 and it stars George C. Scott and it is a horror movie called The Changeling. And I don't know maybe if horror is the exact right word. Maybe it would be a psychological thriller slash horror. I don't know. I've always heard about this movie, but I've never seen it. And I don't have any uh, biases or anything like that, I guess we'd say, uh, about the movie, uh, either good or bad. You know, I I guess in some way you could say, oh, maybe I have a little in that this is a a movie that was uh, that a lot of people have liked and a lot of people have seen sort of in the horror genre. So we'll see on that. But anyway. What I'm going to do today that's different is I am going to, uh, first I'll give you guys a little bit of background on the movie, sort of some of the things I like to talk about, and then I'm just going to watch the movie, and about every probably 15 minutes or so, I'm going to talk about what I've seen, what I'm feeling, what I think of performances, things of that nature. Uh, So before we get uh, jumping in with the movie, again, this is The Changeling with George C. Scott. Let's go ahead and get some of that contact info. I would love to hear from you guys. And if you'd like to contact me, you can do it a couple of different ways. You can call in on the voicemail, which is area code 206-745-2731. 206-745, and if we were to go by the letters, APE, A-P-E, and then the number one. You are limited to 90 seconds on that, but you can call in as many times as you want. Or if you want to record your own audio, or if you want to just write an email, you know, just a quick little thing, I'll read it out for you on the show, or I'll play your audio for you on the show. And the place to send that is thearmedape at gmail.com. All one word, thearmedape at gmail.com. If you go over to the website, which is thearmedape.com, you'll find buttons for all the social media stuff, and you can check those out if you'd like. My YouTube channel is doing pretty good. I'm up in the 500s as far as subscribers, so for those of you that have uh, helped out with that, I appreciate it. If you like the show 
and would ever think about supporting it financially, you can go again over to the website. There's a PayPal donation button there. If you'd like to support the show in a different way, I'd say maybe tell some of your friends, uh, put the word out there, or uh, again, just calling in maybe with suggestions for what movies to review, uh, or if you have a product that you really like a lot, go ahead and send, uh, send me an email or send me an audio of something that you really like and you'd like to review. We'll get it out on the show for you. All right, so like I said, let's do a little bit of background first. Oh, and one other thing before we do jump in. It may sound a little echoey, and if it does, that's because I'm out in the living room, and in my house there's lots of tile, and of course the sound is going to bounce off the walls and everything. Hopefully it won't be too bad or won't be too distracting. So let's go in and talk a little bit about some of the background of the movie. So an interesting thing, I had said earlier that the movie was 1979. And the reason I said that it was because on the bottom, uh, when they, I guess, date stamp it or do that for the copyright, it actually said 1979. So I don't know if maybe production finished up and it was actually released in 1980, or maybe the movie was kind of in the can in 79 and wasn't released until 80. So at the time, George C. Scott, uh, who is the main guy, and he is a, a music professor or a composer, I guess. Uh, but the, the actor would have been 52 years old. And it's funny, you know, you look at people in, in today's uh, world, and just even the average person who's 52 doesn't look as... as uh, as kind of old as they did back then. And I don't know, maybe if there wasn't uh, as much plastic surgery or maybe just the life in general was a little bit harder. I, I think people sort of uh, drank and smoked a lot and uh, had a little bit maybe harder life as far as, uh, well, I guess with some people, as far as stress and things like that. So uh, it kind of did age him. Uh, so anyway, the the movie has a ton of... Uh, when I just I, I did a, a very cursory look on IMDb just to see sort of who the main stars were and get some of the birthdays and things like that. It has a ton of people that you would recognize, and especially if you were growing up in that era or watched a lot of TV and movies, it's got a lot of actors that would probably be considered more character actors than they would mainstream stars type thing. You know, George C. Scott is probably the biggest name of the movie. So the movie opens up and you see him, he's pushing a station wagon and he's got uh, uh, his wife and daughter. Daughter looks like she's maybe 10 years old or so. Car has kind of broken down and so, and it's snowy. They're up in the mountains and they're kind of laughing. They get it kind of pushed off to the side. There's a phone booth. He goes over to call AAA or something like that and a car kind of slides off the road at the same time that a big uh, semi-truck type thing is coming and it hits the back of the car and it smashes into his sort of uh, into his wife and daughter and we're led to uh, believe by his reaction of course it uh, uh, the truck when it hits their car smashes into them and kills them and this is just in the very you know first few minutes of the movie so I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to watch for about 
15, 20 minutes or so, and then I'll pop back in and talk about what I've seen. So this is a good as place as any to jump in. We've kind of come to a, a little bit of a stopping point in the story where we're getting some things established. I don't know if I'd mentioned it. I think that they said it was something like January. They were in upstate New York when the movie first opens where the accident happened. It flashes forward to March and he is leaving some big building and he's walking through the city. He ends up going back to his apartment building. There's a doorman there and the doorman says, you know, Mr. Russell, if you need anything, just let me know and I, you know, I'll help you. And he's, oh, thanks very much, Stan. He goes up to his apartment. You can tell that the apartment has been emptied out there. He goes into a room and there are some boxes. His housekeeper comes up and a little ball bounces out. And he, uh, it's the same ball that he's, he's, you see him having this flashback where he's, he uh, sees his daughter and his daughter comes in. And she's like, catch daddy and throws the ball to him. And he uh, says to the maid, or the housekeeper, you know, the, you know, make sure this stuff gets out to Seattle. This stuff's all going over there too. So we see that he's going to be live, uh, leaving New York, going out to Seattle. The apartment that he lives in or lived in with his family is, it's a very nice apartment. Uh, and in the flashback that he has, we see that it's very well furnished. Uh, so he has money. He's very, he's, he's an accomplished person. He ends up going out to Seattle and he, we, uh, the next thing we have with him is he's talking to some uh, friends of his that, uh, that turn out to be, I think the guy's either an administrator or professor at a college, maybe that he's going to go to or someplace where he's going to be teaching. And he's talking about, you know, when it first happened, I, I, I kind of just didn't feel anything. And then one day it, all of a sudden it just hit me. And then I just walked around the apartment saying they're gone, they're gone, they're gone just over and over again. And he says, but it's been, you know, four months and you know, I've got to, got to go forward basically type thing. The, the, uh, the wife of his friend says, well, Hey, basically you can come live here and stay with us for a while. And he's like, no, I'm, I, I think I'll probably just get a house or something that I can rent. I got some, I got, you know, my things are coming from New York and I just need a place where I can go in and, and get to work. And then she says, well, hey, I, I've got some friends that are with this historic society and we'll see what they can do. Maybe they can find a place for you. And he's like, okay. Now they don't really say this and you're, you kind of get this through some, some inferences, but it, he ends up going out to, and I'll talk about what the inferences are here in a second. He ends up going out to uh, this property and then a lady comes up and she drives up and she's got a Mercedes. So, Again, the, the uh, impression, I guess, maybe that we're supposed to get is that, she, you know, the, she's pretty wealthy. She, uh, I guess, volunteers with the Historic Society. She's been doing it for about a year now. And they drive up to the main house, and it's a huge place. It's a giant mansion. And she says to him, you know, at one time they were thinking about making this thing into a museum, but they never really did it, and... Uh, I guess the idea was that they would maybe, if they could find somebody suitable, they would get somebody in there who would live in the house so that the house wouldn't deteriorate any, uh, any further than, it, than it's going to. And he goes around the house, and like I said, it's a gigantic mansion. And 
you know, she says, oh, you know, we're, uh, we're glad to have somebody of your, of your, uh, what, what, I can't remember the phrase she used, but of basically of your accomplishment and of your, of your fame, you know, of, of, of uh, level of a of composer that he is. And so I suppose maybe we could say either he's like, um, probably the closest thing we would say today, maybe he would be somebody like a Danny Elfman or something like that. You know, somebody that, you know, that a lot of people maybe know, or, you know, maybe he's kind of a, a big wig in the, in sort of the art and society, uh, groups, you know, type thing that they would know of this guy of John Russell. So anyway, he's like, uh, well, how much, you know, what does it take to maintain a place like this? Because, and again, this is some of the inference of, you know, I'm just one guy, I can't do this. If you're wanting me in here so that the house, and you said it needs some work, and the house, I, you know, I'm not going to be able to do it. And she's like, oh, you know, we've got a guy, we have a man that comes out and maintains the house. So we cut, and he's like, okay, well, what are the terms? And then it cuts. And then we see him, and he's, he's impressed with the place. Oh, and one other thing I guess I should mention, and it was just a quick little thing. I'm not saying it was subtle by any means, but back when he's talking with his friends at, the, uh, at their place, their two kids come running in, and one of them is a little girl that is about the age of his daughter, probably, again, 10 or 11, and she has sort of the same you know, coloring. Uh, she's got the same kind of hair color the same length of hair uh, looks very familiar to her and he just kind of looks at her and he you know he gets a little smile on his face a little bit of a wistful thing but I, I like that he isn't I, I think maybe a, in a lesser movie he would have had this like stunned reaction or this reaction of where you know you see this real kind of uh, pain thing and they would have you know, panned over maybe to the, to his, to, to the married couple there. And they would be like, Oh, you know, I, uh, uh, I know, you know, she looked like your daughter and blah, 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 blah. but they don't do any of that. It's just, you know, she kind of goes through, he looks at her and she kind of smiles at him and she, you know, runs through like little kids do. And again, he, it's a very, uh, the acting of it is good because it's just, you see, Oh, that's, you know, she looks like my daughter. And then, you know, you, so it, again, it, Oh, that's my dog barking at nothing. Isn't that nice? So, this little segment has been brought to you by my barking dog, Cookie. All right. Hey. That's quite enough out of you, young lady. So, he goes to the house. We see that there is a, there's a cleaning woman in the house, and she's, she's you know, kind of wiping it on the tables. There is the man who is sort of like maybe the maintenance guy, and his name is Mr. Tuttle, and he's, you know, dusting some books and putting them on the shelf. He comes in and George C. Scott is playing the piano. He hits kind of a dead note on on one of the keys. He presses it down and there's no sound. And he, he kind of looks at it and he's like, hmm, you know, kind of like, well, I'm going to have to get that fixed. And Mr. Tuttle comes in and says, hey. So he says, hey, there's a, a guy who's going to, you know, put this water tank up. And he's like, oh, OK. And, and so then he goes out. And as he goes out the camera kind of follows him and then it pans back to the piano and it zooms in on the keys kind of slow. And then all of a sudden that key that he was pressing before it goes down and it goes like, dong. and then of course some on, ominous music pops up and then we cut from there and uh, 
then we go on to the next scene and I'll talk about that stuff here in just a second. The next scene we see John and he is going uh, up to the classroom. He's talking to the, the guy that we had met before, his friend. And uh, he gets into his classroom and he's kind of taken aback. He looks and it's just, it's a huge classroom and it's just packed. And he's like, well, he goes in there and he's like, the last I checked, there was only 27 people, you know, registered for this class. And there's about probably a hundred in there. You know, the thing is jam packed. And so uh, the interaction he has with the class, you know, he makes kind of a few jokes and you can tell he's kind of a charming guy. He's at his ease. He's, uh, he is comfortable being in front of people, that type of thing. We cut to there to the sim to a symphony where they're playing, I think, a piece that he has composed. He meets up with uh, Claire Norman, who is, I guess, the, the lady with the Historic Society. And we're also introduced to, uh, there's a senator that makes a speech, whether he's going to come in again later down the road. Claire tells him, oh, this guy, you know, they're, they're sort of watching him up from on this balcony as he's making a speech. And she says, yeah, he's sort of one of our largest uh, donors and patrons. Uh, so after, after the, uh, the symphony, he ends up going back home. As he's uh, walking up to the house, he parks off in a small little garage on the side, then walks up and goes in through the front door. And you get a real kind of haunted house vibe. And, of course, the music they're playing is a little ominous. The, uh, the next thing we see is that the camera kind of pans through the house. It goes up to a clock that's on a wall, and it says 6 a.m. And you hear this kind of weird uh, banging, thumping sound. It almost sounds like if you had a, like a big air duct or something, and you were banging on it. It's like this, you know, this boom, boom, boom. And he, he's awakened by it. He goes out and his bedroom is sort of up on the upper landing. The house is, of course, has probably about maybe three stories, I guess, uh, including the attic. And he goes out on this uh, stairwell thing and he's looking. He's not really afraid. He seems to be more curious. And it, you know, it bangs a few times, uh, you know, maybe for about 20, 30 seconds, and then it stops. We cut to them. He is working at the piano and we see the shot of him. It's like we're standing at the front of the piano looking at him and then we see there's a door behind him and it just sort of slowly opens. And then he kind of gets a sense of something. He turns around and he looks and he's like, oh, you know, uh, he goes out and he calls for Mr. Tuttle, who again is sort of the, the caretaker. Tuttle is outside and he hears him and he comes in to an opposite door and it kind of startles John and he's like oh is anybody else working in the house and he's like no it's just me today and he's like oh okay and he doesn't really think much of it but he kind of you know kind of takes note of it and he probably in his mind is thinking like well these houses are old they're kind of drafty probably just didn't have, I thought I had the door shut all the way and probably just didn't or maybe the you know the thing with the wind is strong enough these you know it's got these old latches and and uh, things like that. So the door kind of blew open. So he doesn't really think too much of it. Uh, and he kind of gets back to work. And he's recording on this uh, the old kind of reel-to-reel things. And he's working on composing some stuff. We cut to that. And he's sitting on the stairwell. And he's looking through a book. And he's got that recording playing of, of uh, stuff. And then all of a sudden, which I found kind of funny, Claire just sort of walks in. 
Uh, he's inside the house and she just sort of comes into the frame and he's like, Oh, hello. But she didn't knock on the door. She didn't do anything. Uh, I guess she just sort of just walked in, you know, kind of bold as bold as brass. And she is, uh, she's wearing what you would consider maybe like an English riding outfit. So it's like the, the tall, almost knee high leather boots and then the riding pants and then like a riding jacket type thing. And uh, she was bringing over some artwork or some photos type things of the house for him. And uh, she sees, she comments on the music that's playing. And then she sees that there is sort of a, oh, I don't know. I, maybe it's like a writing desk. Anyway, it's some type of antique piece of furniture. And she's like, oh, did you, that's beautiful. Did you refinish it? And he's like, no, I didn't. She sort of opens up the top. So if you think of it maybe as a closed top writing desk, she kind of opens up and she takes out the, the ball. And you remember from the earlier scene, the ball had bounced out the out of uh, one of the boxes. And she looks at it and she kind of smiles and looks back at him and holds it up like, oh, what's this? And he's like, oh, you know, that was my daughter Kathy's, uh, it was her ball. And then she's kind of like, oh, and you could tell she feels awkward. She sort of turns around and puts it back and then she sort of walks off and you can tell the expression on her face is kind of like, oh, shoot, I kind of messed that up. Uh, I stepped in it now a little bit. You can also tell that she's attracted to him the way that she looks at him. And so she thinks, oh, did I mess up maybe a chance that I would have with him? And then he's, uh, he comments on her, are you going riding? And she's like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm going, do you ride? And then they, and then, so she, uh, the next thing we cut to, they're out riding around and they get up to a, a meadow where they're sort of walking some stuff through. They're walking the horses. She kind of turns around and, and looks back at him and says, oh, you know, what's wrong? And he's like, oh, you know, I was just thinking of, you know, how my daughter, you know, she really loved horses. And, you know, you can tell he's kind of having, uh, you know, an emotional moment there in a flashback. And she, you know, she she looks at him with understanding and some compassion then it cuts back to, and it's funny, the cuts are kind of in this movie are a little, sometimes they're a little, they're not as quick as they can be, and then sometimes they're a little abrupt. And this is one where it's a little abrupt, so it cuts back to him, and you he is in bed, and he's crying. And then you see the little digital clock, it pops over to 6 a.m., and then all of a sudden you hear like this boom, 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 boom. You hear the thumping again. He, you know, kind of gets up and he's looking around. And then we cut to where he's down in the basement with Mr. Tuttle. And there's this big, huge, uh, I guess it's maybe like an oil boiler or something like that. And, you know, Tuttle's like banging on the pipes and stuff. And he's like, oh, you know, there's probably an airlock or something in here somewhere. And then John's like, well, why would this happen, you know, two days in a row? And why would it happen right at six o'clock? And why would it only last for, you know, half a minute or so and then stop? And then Tuttle is saying, well, you know, look, these, uh, these furnaces, a lot of them, they kind of have a life of their own. They have these quirks. This house is old. These houses make all sorts of weird noises, uh, you know, and so you get sort of that the explanation of, yeah, you're going to hear some weird stuff and some weird stuff may happen, but a lot of it is just, it's the nature of a house this old. And again, he doesn't say this, but this is what's being inferred is that, you know, this old, you know, stuff can 
weird stuff can happen, but it's just like the, the you know, the house is settled, maybe things aren't even. And so, you know, when a draft comes through, doors can open, you know, you can hear weird sounds, all this other stuff. That evening, I, and I think it's that evening, it, he's had, he has some students over and they are uh, working on some composition and doing some stuff. Now, again, a lot of the, I think probably at the university, uh, university that he is at, he is, an, uh, you know, a, I think he's a pretty famous guy. He's somebody that a lot of these people, especially, you know, if you're in a, a larger school, that he is a pretty, what would we say, prestigious uh, composer who is, uh, has his, his stuff is being uh, used today so so these kids are would be happy to come out there and kind of practice with them anyway it's it's more kind of like a slice of life type thing i think the scene that we're seeing and you know he at the end of their their little thing that they do their uh, uh at the end of the piece he's like oh you know very good you know except you were doing this and then uh, he says to one of the girls darling you were about you know four by you know you're you're a little bit behind on such you know blah blah blah, blah. but other than that you know we're doing great so they all take they uh you cut to an outside shot. They are driving away, and uh, as one of them is driving away, they kind of give him like a little beep beep on the horn, you know, as a way of saying like "see you next time" or "see you later." And you know, he gets a smile on his face. You can tell he is uh, while he's working. And this is some stuff that I've I noticed a little bit. It it seems that while he's working and composing, he seems to have some. Uh, some happiness uh, or it, it, it kind of takes him out of some of his uh, his mad his not madness his uh, I was, I was going to say his despair and yeah, I was thinking melancholy too and so that kind of came in there but it's not madness uh, but it, it takes him away from that it, it, uh, it gives him something else to sort of focus on and as you know when he hears that little beep beep you see him it cuts back to him and he has this little smile on his face and he closes the door. And I don't know, it was dark in the background. And then as he closes the door and goes to shut off the, the doorway light where he is, the light behind him in the background comes on. And then uh, he hears like some strange sounds. It almost sounds like, a, almost sounds like an animal like a little bit of a keening sound, if that makes sense. Anyway, he goes back, he hears water running and he goes back to the kitchen and he sees that the faucet is on and he, you know, he looks at it kind of odd and it, he shuts it off. And then you hear that strange kind of keening sound again. And he's looking up and he, he hears water and he ends up going all the way up to the attic, which is on the top floor. And he goes in and there is a sink and a tub and the tub is filling up and he's, he is kind of, again, he's not afraid, but you can tell he's like, what, you know, what is going on here? Yeah. I can maybe understand that the, the furnace makes weird noises, but why would the water just come on? He's able to turn, he turns, like I said, he turned the faucet off down in the kitchen. He goes up to the attic. He sees the tub is filling up with water and he kind of looks at it for a little bit. Then he turns it off. And then he gets sort of, uh, it's almost like that, like a ghostly image he sees in the, like under the water. 
he kind of just backs up out of the, of the, of the, uh, I guess we'd call it maybe the bathroom up there. It then cuts to him. We see him backing out of the doorway and it's kind of dark and you just see his back and then he backs all the way up to where the camera goes to black. We cut to the next morning and he has gone to the historical society and he is up. Uh, it's an interesting shot in that he's up kind of out on this balcony and he's talking to Claire and he's like, well, has there any ever been any reports of trouble or anything like that? And if there were, what, you know, what did people do about it? She's like, you know, John, you've, you've been working really hard. You've come off a, you know, a major traumatic and emotional event. Do you think it's possible? And he's like, what, that I'm hallucinating all this stuff. And she's like, look, and then as they're getting ready to talk, a lady comes up and opens up the door to the balcony and is like, you know, Claire, your mom's on the phone. You know, should I tell you you're busy or you'll take it now? And she's like, I'll, I'll be right there. She turns to John and says, hey, I'll be right back. And then she walks off. He's him that uh, the lady that come up, she's like probably an older lady, probably more like his age or so, maybe a little bit older, but probably in her mid 50s. She says, you know, Miss Norman should not have rented that house. She rushed your papers through our legal department. And, you know, there's uh, and he's like, well, why would why would anybody care if I'm if I'm there or not? And then she says to him and she looks at him and she says that, that she says that house is not fit to live in. Nobody, no one has been able to live in it. It doesn't want people. And then John says, so there has been trouble before. And then she just sort of looks at him and then turns on her heel and walks off. So before we go too much further, I, I think probably we would call maybe the end of the first act is when he gets the information about from the lady at the historical site saying the house doesn't, the house does not want people in there. and Nobody's been able to live in there. And so right now we're starting at the second act. Because what we've done is we've established sort of a little bit of his character. We've established, you know, uh, what type of a person he is, that he is, he's probably generally a decent, kind person, and that he is going, he is still in the grieving process because it's only been maybe three, four months since his, uh, since his family was killed. And right, so we so we've got all that stuff established, and we've got sort of, and we the viewers have, are seeing that oh, there's some stuff that's going on here, and it's in a in in a small way, it's kind of thrown out there. Oh, maybe some of this stuff is in this guy's head, but maybe it's not. You know, so as the viewers, are we to believe kind of what Claire has said in that? Well, you could be imagining all this stuff just because you've had this huge trauma. But I think, too, as the viewer, you're supposed to be like, no, this isn't just him because this lady has given us that information of, hey, people have tried to live there in the past and nobody can. And it was sort of our you almost get the sense that she's thinking we've tried to rent it. It, it just doesn't work. And so it's sort of our job now to keep the house vacant. And eventually, you know, if it deteriorates and, and, and rots, so be it, that type of thing. 
again, we're starting probably the second act now. He, like I said, he was, was walking out and some glass shatters from upstairs, uh, from like the high part. He picks it up, turns around and looks and he can see up on the top. He's like, oh, that's where that glass would have come from. He goes back up, goes back inside, goes back up. And it's daytime, so the house isn't completely dark, but because it is an older house and it's so big, there's a lot of places where the light doesn't get through. Also, because it's an older house, it doesn't have sort of modern lighting schemes, I guess, what we would be used to today. So he, and it looks like, and again, like I said, this is my first time ever watching this. It looks like he is, hasn't really explored the house too much. And I don't know how much time has passed. I don't know if he's only maybe been in here maybe a week or so, uh, or, or, or if it's, if, or if we're supposed to think when we're seeing like night and day changes, is it supposed to be chronologically? Okay. That's one day you saw, that's another day you saw. So this would mean that he's probably on his third, maybe fourth day of being in the house. Uh, we know that when he spoke with Mr. Tuttle, he was like, well, you know, this has happened in two days in a row. And I think maybe he had only been there maybe one day prior to that. So I, I, like I said, at the most, he's probably been in this house about a week. So anyway, he, and so I say that because I don't think he's really explored the whole house. I think he's kind of been busy with throwing himself into work and getting, you know, into his new, his new job and getting into that kind of picking up his career again and picking up the pieces. So he ends up going up to the top floor and he goes to where he, you could tell in his head, he's like, okay, this is where that room should be. And he goes and he opens up a door and it's just this little closet. And so he's looking around he then kind of notices and there's like some shelves with like a paint can and a hammer and some stuff on there. And he just sort of, and he noticed, and there's like an old vase and a couple other things. Anyway, he notices, Oh, there's, it looks like, um, it's been boarded up behind these shelves. And so he starts moving stuff around and he yanks some boards out and it's a little, um, frantic when he's doing this stuff, which is kind of funny because this is a, a, uh, a house that's in the historic society. So you, he ends up just basically anything that's on the shelves, he's just throwing them down on the ground and a couple of the vases get broken. And I was, I was wondering, I was thinking, well, I hope those weren't like, you know, 300 year old precious vases or something that they had in here to store. Anyway, he, uh, he pries all the boards out and then he notices there's a door there, but it's got an, like an old timey padlock on it. And so he picks up a hammer and he starts hitting the padlock to try and break it. And as he's hitting it, it's funny, um, he's, he's not hitting it like a normal person. And, and the reason I say that too is because earlier he had talked about that the banging that he hears is sort of this rhythmic sound. It's like, you know, boom, 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 boom. And so when he's hitting, he's hitting to that, like in that, that count. And then all of a sudden, as he's hitting the thing, that sound comes back. You hear boom, 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 boom. And he, he stops and then he puts his hands over his ears cause it's super loud. And then he just, and then he gets back to hitting that padlock again and he opens it up. It's a dark stairway that's leading up and he heads in there 
As he goes up the stairs, you see like a crack of, of light and there's a doorway. He goes in through and he finds this room and you see there is sort of an old timey wheelchair. The room is covered in dust and cobwebs. He goes over and sees where the, the stained glass window, one of the pieces of red glass had come out. He looks uh, at this uh, old writing desk, the old roll top writing desk, and he picks up a almost looks like a little folder or something. And it has some initials on it. Uh, and I can't remember what the initials are like CS one or something like that. And it's dated 1909. So again, at the time of the movie, this is supposed to be taking place modern or, or present day, I guess we would say at the time of the movie. So if it's 1909 and it's 1979, when this is being filmed, basically, so what we're led to probably believe is that room has probably been boarded up for the last 60, maybe 70 years. As he goes through the room a little bit more, he finds a, a little box. He opens it up. It turns out it's a music box. It starts playing. He ends up taking it downstairs. If you're probably astute musically, this is where you would say, oh, I recognize that. I, I recognize what the tune that the music box is playing. So the piece that he's been working on, he takes it downstairs. He's downstairs. Uh, it's later that day sometime. Claire is over there with him. He's got the music box going, and he's playing back the composition that he had played on the piano and had recorded earlier. And he's saying it's the same, it's the same notes. It's the same, you know, he's basically saying how musically it's basically the same thing. And she's like, well, you know, this was probably a super popular tune, else they wouldn't have put it in a music box. And, you know, probably back in the early 1900s. And he's like, yeah, but I, I understand that. But he said, I swear, I've, I've never heard it before. So is the house at this point, you know, or the spirit in the house or whatever it is, is that creeping into his subconscious and psyche? And, 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 and so it's sort of coming out in the music. I don't know. We'll see. And one of the things that's interesting is his John says, you know, there's this stuff has happened before. And then Claire says to him, look, I looked at all the records. Uh, I went back to the twenties. None of this stuff has ever happened. And he's like, yeah, but Mrs. Huxley said, she's like, look, she's basically an eccentric old woman. And, and uh, he's like, no, no, no. He's just like, look, every, everything that's happened like the glass came from the inside out, the bangings, the water, the house is, and I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, but basically what he's saying is the house, everything it's doing is desperately trying to communicate. There's something here that's trying to communicate and there's something that wanted to get me up in that attic. He ends up taking her up to the room and shows her all the stuff. And there was a little wheelchair there, but the wheelchair is made for a child. When she looks at the book, she said, oh, this was written by a child. Uh, the little folder up there. And the uh, initials, you know, CSB. They end up doing some investigating. And what they found, what they find out is a couple of things. They find out that the Senator Carmichael, the guy that we had met at the symphony earlier, Turns out that his family at one time had owned that house. We also find out that 
back in the uh, 1900s, there was a doctor who owned the house and he had a little girl and his girl had been killed in a very similar accident to uh, John's daughter, Kathy. And as John and Claire are sort of going through and doing the investigation. He's like, you know, you know, what is this house trying to do? What is, what's going on? Why is it trying to communicate with me? And he's like, I can't go through it again. I can't meaning that I, it's almost like he accepts that there's this spirit and the spirit may need to be, uh, able to be granted peace or put to rest or something like that. And he's just saying, I can't do it again. And then what she says to him is a sensible thing. She's like, you got to get out of that house. Now, whether or not she believes that there's actually something going on, or she thinks, hey, this guy's mental health, there's, there's something about this house that, won't, that keeps bringing up his past and won't let him move on. Now, granted, his past was only you know, three or four months ago. But I, I think that's probably more what she's thinking is like, for whatever reason, this house brings up a lot of your emotional damage and trauma and you just need to get out of there. So he ends up going back home and he's sitting kind of in the den or something like that. And he hears this thump, 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 thump. And what it is, is it's the ball that his daughter used to have. And he goes over and he checks into that little writing desk. The ball is gone. So he takes a drive and he comes to a bridge and gets out and kind of hesitantly drops a ball and it drops into the water. He returns home and then all of a sudden, thump, thump, thump. The ball comes down the stairs and you can tell at this point he is freaked out this is one of the first times in the movie where you you see that he's actually kind of scared or he's starting to feel out of his depth so he ends up going over to the wing of the university like the next day and talks to a guy in a lab coat and as they're coming out through this archway you see there's a sign overhead that says psychic research and that guy tells him, hey, 99% of these mediums and psychics are fraud, but there is 1% that is legit. And I'll hook you up with uh, the legit 1%. So he's like, oh, a medium, huh? It cuts to, we're back at the house. There is an older couple that are the, the medium and her husband. Also at his house, uh, Claire is there. And for some reason... She has brought her mother. They start to do a seance, I guess, of some type. And what's revealed is that the they uh, John thinks it's going to be the girl, the spirit of the girl. And it turns out they ask the name. And the way that they get the information is the lady kind of goes into a trance and then she scribbles on paper and then she'll be able to write stuff out and they find out that the actual spirit is the child of the doctor, but his name is Joseph. I think it's the child of the doctor because the doctor had two kids. He had a little girl and a little boy. And then it kind of ends with her kind of going into a little bit of a frenzy where she's just writing help, help, help over and over and over. 
during the seance, they keep asking the spirit, you know, how did you die? Did you die here? What happened? And there's like a glass candy dish or something on the table that they're sitting around and it gets hurled across the room. All right, pardon that interruption. Anyway, he had taped the seance before. And so now he's back in the house and he's by himself. And he starts playing the stuff back. And he hears kind of faint voices or a faint voice that's caught up or a sound. It turns out it's a voice. So this is the part where if you don't want spoilers, right? You, because going forward, we're probably about halfway through the movie right now. So if you don't want spoilers, maybe bail out, go watch it, and then come back. If you don't care about spoilers, we're going to be pretty open with the spoilers, I guess, from here on out. So this is the spoiler warning. If you're listening, remember, the movie is going to be spoiled. I think this would be probably the first important plot point. So as he listens to the tape, uh, what we're shown is that we th- we think it's the son of the doctor, but it turns out that this little boy who uh, couldn't walk, and I, I, I don't know if he was paralyzed through an accident or was that way, but anyway, his, we find out that his father killed him, and what happened is up in his room he had this little bathtub, and the kid was sitting in the bath, and the father comes in, grabs him by his feet and pulls him up to where he is submerged underwater. And earlier the sound of that banging is actually the sound of him hitting his fists on the tub. That's like what he would have heard while he was underwater. The boom, boom, boom. And eventually the father drowns the kid. You you think... That oh this this happened you know this was the uh, the doctor, but it turns out it's actually a, a Carmichael because the kid says his name is Joseph Carmichael. So I don't know if that's going to mean that the senator that we were introduced to earlier, who is probably supposed to be, you know, in his seventies I guess. So this kid may have you know, been killed back into the 20s or 30s or something. Uh, If it's basically 1980 and this guy is 70, if we go back maybe 40 years, even 50 years, it would be uh, 40 years would put us at 1940, 50 years would put us at, 50 years would put us in the 1930s. And you say if, if the senator guy was 20 at that point, uh, so, you know, so who knows we're, um, if, if we're looking at kind of doing the math that way, it would probably work out sometimes though, in these movies, they don't tend to, they pay a little, little fast and loose sometimes with that. So I wonder if it will either be the Senator who actually drowned one of his children, maybe when he was in his twenties and now he's, you know, 75 or something like that. Uh, or maybe they kept him up there and maybe it was, you know, something that happened in the, 40s or 50s you know who knows so but uh it'll be interesting to see kind of what develops in the movie so i'm going to take another little quick break i had a bit of an interruption or an interlude there i guess so i had to go away from the movie and then i came back to it so i think when last i 
left, there was the seance and they had gotten done with that. John kind of comes to and he is holding on to the, to the papers that the lady was doing that like scribble writing on. And it was very like frenetic when she was writing and everything. I thought it was actually a pretty good scene. So anyway, he comes to, and on the paper he's got, he's written, you know, Joseph Carmichael, Sacred Heart, Buried Well, Metal. He's written a bunch of stuff on the paper. And he, they actually did a good job. He looks ashen. He looks just gray. He stumbles over to the phone. He's visibly shaken. Uh, and, and this is what's happened is that the spirit of Joseph has come down and basically in a way sort of possessed him and shown him how he was murdered. So he stumbles over to the phone. He's barely able to make a phone call. He calls up Claire and he's like, yeah, you can, you know, come over, come over. And he basically just hits the deck and passes out. Uh, she comes over and I, I think what's happened is he, he's kind of recovering in a chair and he has her go into the other room and plays back the seance tapes where you can clearly hear Joseph's voice. Um, now they, during the seance, didn't really hear any of that. Supposedly maybe the medium was hearing that stuff, but nobody else was. And she comes out and she's kind of crying and she's sort of visibly shaken. I didn't really, I, I can understand, I guess, in the framework of the movie that you're supposed to maybe fill in that she went in there and it really affected her. But I would have liked to have seen maybe a scene of her listening to that, having a realization. And then um, you, it seems like she's kind of super emotional uh, without maybe having earned it, quote unquote, for the, you know, for the movie. And she is sort of, you know, kind of getting the, starting to get a little hysterical. And then all of a sudden she just freezes and looks and the little wheelchair that was up in the attic room is now sort of, downstairs on the top of the stairwell uh, and then it just cuts and we see the senator he's going into his this big building now not only is he a senator and has power that way but he is also very very wealthy he gets a call from mrs huxley and mrs huxley is that lady who works at the historical society she tells the senator hey these people were looking at these files and stuff. And then he's like, well, give me the name of that person. And we see, we, we, so the, the Senator at least is aware of maybe who it is. And so he can maybe start some research on who John is and who Claire is or are probably, as I was gonna say who they are. So we cut to the next scene. Claire is at a restaurant and this is where, Again, it gets into a, the, a major spoiler of what is happening in the background. And it lets us as the audience know earlier, as opposed to, I think if this movie were made today, a lot of this revelation would, would come later. The story is, and, and, and before, you know, like I said, I've never seen this before. And so as I was watching it and I would watch a little bit, then take a break and kind of give comment, I thought, oh, you know, did did this maybe happen a little bit later on? 
you know, maybe in the forties or fifties or something like that. And now uh, this guy drowned his own son and that's how they're going to do it. But what happened is back in 1900, the Joseph, who's the, uh, who is the spirit was born and Joseph, uh, father was named Richard Carmichael. His mother was the last was Emily Spencer and her father was a super, super wealthy guy. So his, his mother, when Joe had died, or, or excuse me, when Joseph was born, his mother died in childbirth. So this would have happened in 1900. Joe had what they called atrophytic arthritis. Is that a real thing? I don't know. It might be. But basically, he was very sickly. He couldn't walk. So remember, uh, Joseph, I guess I should call him instead of Joe. There was a newspaper article they found where they said, oh, Joseph is going to go with his father for this treatment at a, uh, at the Nordback Sanitarium in Switzerland. And he went in 1906, and then he didn't come back until after World War I, which would have been 1918. And then at this point, John has pieced together what happened because now he's seen the murder. He's, you know, he's convinced of this stuff. He knows what happened back in 1906. And so what John says, here's what I think happened. I think that Richard Carmichael, the father, drowned the, uh, drowned, we'll say spirit Joseph, just to keep it to keep it clear and then buried him in a well on a property that they had. He then went to a, a local orphanage or an orphanage that was around there, found a kid who kind of looked like Joe and then whisked him off to Switzerland. They ended up staying over there for 12 years so that by the time Richard and Joe uh, who's who's going to end up being eventually being the senator? So we'll call him Joe. So by the time Richard and Joe come back, he's like, well, who who would have known that this isn't the same person because it's been twelve years? Plus, you know, back then there's probably not tons of photographs, all this other stuff. And he also says, well, he's if if he's cured, the story would be, oh, he he got cured or he's walking again, but he got cured over in Switzerland. So everything works out. And again, he's like, well, who's going to know that he was replaced? Nobody's going to know. Claire asked when he's telling us like, well, do you think like the Senator knows, do you think he is kind of in on this deception? And he's like, I don't know. I have no idea. The background with the, with the wife. So the, Carmichael's were probably well-to-do, but his wife, again, who I mentioned before, Emily Spencer, and this is, again, this is kind of the convoluted part, but it actually kind of, it makes sense. Her father was, and this is the term that John uses when he's talking, he's like, oh, he was a zillionaire, meaning he just had tons and tons of money, all sorts of interest, shipping interest, all sorts of things. Uh, and we're in, you're inferred some of that stuff uh, because there's, there's, uh, when you go into the Senator, uh, Carmichael's office, you see models of ships and all this other type of stuff. So like, uh, shipping container ships type things. John has gone 
let me get my thoughts here. John has gone into the uh, down to like City Hall and gotten a record of the will. Like all this stuff is kind of like you know, in theory, would be public record. I don't know if in, in reality it would be, but he goes down and he says, "Well, I found out that the will said that Richard, who is Joe's father." isn't going to get anything. He's going to be bypassed all of the estate, all of the money, all the business interests all goes to Joseph. And when Joseph comes of age, then he'll, everything reverts to him. But until then, Richard is going to be his guardian. He'll be the trustee. So in theory, he'll have control of a lot of it for a long time. Uh, What was his name? H. I think it was H.T. Spencer, who was the millionaire. He died in 1905, so shortly after his daughter had died. And apparently he didn't like Richard, and so that's why he gave everything to, to him. Also, what he said was in the will, or gave every, was going to have everything go to Joe and bypass Richard. Also, what he said in the will is, look, if, Rit, if uh, Joe, if Joseph dies before age of 21... The money, all the money, the estate, everything is sold off and all goes to charity. So at that point, once Richard kind of finds that stuff out back in 1905, that's why they leave sort of the next year. That's when he hatches the scheme to kill uh, Spirit Joseph and replace him with, you know, who is to become later Senator Joseph or Senator Joe, I guess we could call him that. All right. Now we're back from another break here. John tells Claire, hey, I'm going to go down and and find out kind of at the registrar's office or the land thing or whatever and see if there is any um, any any properties that either the Carmichael's or the Spencer's owned, like any ranches that they have that would be somewhere near in Seattle where they would have had a a well. And he goes down and he finds uh, through like this registrar guy and he's like, oh, yeah, this is this property they had, you know, there was a well, they sold some stuff off and eventually this, it shows that the well is gone and there's a house there now. So he sort of, he knows kind of where the house is because he can see it on the, on the public land plot. So he goes out to that house, he knocks on the door, uh, but nobody's home. He finds a a little piece of mail that says, uh, Mrs. E. Gray. We cut to then to John and Claire, and that's when he kind of tells, you know, all this stuff about how he fills her in on all that background of the will and all that other stuff. And they end up going back to Mrs. Gray's house, and this is told a little bit through dialogue. He, they go in, and she's like, hey, you know, I never would have entertained this when you called me, but my daughter had a nightmare like three days ago, the day on Monday when you said you had this seance and she saw this boy rise up out of the floor and was staring at her and, you know, she won't go sleep in there. And now she's doing this. And he's like, well, you know, we think he's in this buried in this well that's under the house. And she's like, well, what you want to do is tear up my house. Right. And he's like, yeah. And she's like, well, let me think about it. I got your number. And then later that evening, uh, her daughter who is Linda goes is kind of in a trance and goes back into her room and sees like you know a little spirit joseph in this shallow watery grave 
and she just starts screaming and screaming. And then this is a clever cut. It cuts boom right into a chainsaw cutting up her floorboards. So uh, they they find the well in the well. Uh, they are they're digging. It's it's just uh, John, and then it turns out Mrs. Gray has an, uh, a son, a little bit older son uh, named Tony, and he helps John dig. They find a skeleton. Then Mrs. Gray is like, well, I'm going to call the cops. So the police are called, and they kind of question John on who do you think this could be, and he's like, I don't really have any idea. And later he is talking with Claire, and he says, well, look, if I don't have that medal, there's no proof. And Again, this may be a little bit of a sort of a conceit of the movie somewhat. Claire goes home, um, and John goes back to the house and I'm sure the police have told them, you know, don't go in. So he actually kind of breaks in through a, a door window. We also have, and we've, I think, and I don't know if I've mentioned it, but sometimes there'll be a camera effect of it just panning with sort of uh, unsettling music. And that is supposed to represent, I think the ghost of Joseph or the spirit of Joseph. Uh, he goes back to the well, he's going to try and find the, the metal uh, and it's it's a basically like it's a like a birth medal or something like that. And I in theory, I suppose maybe you could trace it back to the family. Uh, he digs around. He's kind of looking. He can't really find anything in this little well. And he's leaning back up against the wall of the the well. And then up from the ground, you see, and his eyes are kind of closed. And up from the ground, you see the metal gets sort of pushed up through the soil. Now. The effect was kind of neat, but it's it's also a little bit old school in that all they did was they probably had a little bit of fishing line tied to the metal and chain, and then they just pulled it down through the loose soil, and then they reversed it, and that made it seem like it was getting pushed back up. John ends up taking the metal over to Claire, and he tells her, look, and she's like, we should take this to the police. This is the proof. And he's like, look, this is like a 70-year-old mur murder. The cops aren't going to do anything. And basically, they, he doesn't say this, but the inference is, even if I say this is Joe, Joseph Carmichael, Joseph Carmichael is a super powerful senator, right? And so he's like, no, I've got I've to take this to Carmichael, Carmichael myself, and I've got to do this, that, and the other thing. And he says, I guess I've got to talk to the senator. So he, he somehow knows, and I don't know how, and again, uh, this is just part of movie magic where he just is going to kind of show up or this is just uh, 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 how the story is told. So he somehow knows where the senator is. The senator is at the airport and is getting ready to leave. He drives right up to where the plane is getting ready to take off, runs out, tries to confront the senator. I want to talk to you. And of course the senator, you know, he's got bodyguards. And even if he wasn't a senator, he's a super wealthy guy. He would have, you know, guards that are going to be around him. They basically, a couple of guards, you know, hold John back. And then John is showing him this metal. I got to talk to you. I got to talk to you. They scurry, they, uh, uh, shuttle Senator Joseph in, into the, uh, into the, into the private jet. And then they're going to start to take off. But you do see, they show on camera that the Senator, when he's looking back, there's a shot of his face looking back. He sees the metal that John has. And they're, and once they get him in the jet and they're starting to take off, he's like, you know, they're like, who is that guy? And he's like, ah, he's just some kind of crackpot. Don't worry about it. You see that he also, he tells the pilot, Hey, radio over, radio over to K 
captain so-and-so at the police department and, um, you know, I'll, I'll call him when we touch down, but have him, you know, be ready to expect my call. At the same time, he sort of opens up his shirt and then he pulls out his own little, you know, birth medal that he's got that's got his name and the date that he was born inscribed on there. John has returned to the house. He goes into the house and all of a sudden doors start slamming. All the doors around there start slamming shut and he gets mad. He's like, you son of a bitch. He's like, what do you want from me? I've done everything I can do. We cut to the sort of the next scene and he is, he's just sort of laying down on like this little mini couch. There's a knock on the door and it turns out it's the police captain whose name is DeWitt and DeWitt shows up there and he's there to basically confront John and he's saying like what are you doing you know what do you think you're gonna get from this you you showed up at the airport acting like a lunatic and of course John knows about the seance or not John um, DeWitt knows about the seance which I don't know if maybe he got some of that information from Maybe Mrs. Huxley, because Claire might have told her about it, that type of thing. Uh, I don't know for sure, but he's like, oh, is this where the seance was? And he's like, look, your little blackmail scheme isn't going to work. And John is genuinely sort of taken aback, and he's like, blackmail? It's subtle, and maybe I'm reading into it, but it's a little subtle in that I think that DeWitt maybe kind of is like, oh, I don't think this was this guy's plan. Uh, but what he says to him is, look, the senator says he lost his, his medal and he thinks you have it. Just go ahead and give it back and it'll basically be the end of it. Or I can be back here with a warrant and we'll tear this house apart. Now, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. What he also says to him is he makes a threat um, where he says... You've recently had lost a, a wife and daughter, been through a tragedy, and sometimes that can shake people up. Maybe you're shaken up a little too much. We can get you the help that you need. I, we, I can make that happen. So basically he's saying, look, we can have you committed. I've got some, a certain amount of power, but the senator has all this wealth and power, and unless you kind of back away from this stuff, you're going to be locked up in the loony bin. So uh, um, then the... Um, Claire shows up and there's a knock on the door. John goes and lets Claire in and she's like, I'm so bad right now. And and then she stops and she looks and she sees that DeWitt's there and he's like, this is the police, you know, so-and-so DeWitt. And then that's when DeWitt actually says, hey, you can give me that thing now or I'll be back here within an hour with a warrant and we'll tear this place to the ground. And John is like, okay, whatever, go ahead. I'll be here. And then Claire's like, what do you mean tear this to the ground? And so then the captain, he leaves. And then she's like, they forced me to resign at the historical society. And they didn't tell me why, but I've been forced out. And they've also said that your lease is canceled. And I'm going to go back there and I'm going to try and find out. So she sort of storms off. John takes out the, uh, the metal and he's looking at it. And then he starts to walk down the hallway and he's looking at the metal and he passes by a mirror and he stops and he looks in the mirror and all of a sudden the mirror shatters and the, and the glass kind of shoots out on him and he turns away, he gets a little piece in his neck. And at the same time, we see that the windshield on DeWitt's car 
has been blown out and he's he's just staring straight ahead so you know dewitt's been some type of of car crash claire all of a sudden john gets a phone call and claire's like oh i was driving by because she left right after the cop left or after dewitt left and she's like it's like it's the weirdest thing there's no other cars there's no nothing it's his car is upside down in the road and he's dead so she tells john that he's dead meanwhile the senator's plane lands he gets in his car and calls and wants to get sort of an update he finds out that dewitt is dead he also at that time gets the name of john russell he calls up uh, and then we don't see this but he calls up because the next thing we see is john is driving up to the senator's home so the senator has called him and wants to meet with him meanwhile we cut to a scene where claire is at her house and she's trying to call john and she's like oh it's still busy and she's like i'm gonna i'm gonna leave and her mother's like, well, where are you going? She says, I'll be back. And at the, then we cut to another scene of the house, and it's, it's nighttime, and we see up in that attic room, the window from the outside, the, a light goes on there. So again, Claire has left her house. We cut back over to John and the senator are talking. He basically lays out the story, and he says, you know, this is what happened. The, uh, you know, your, your quote-unquote father murdered the original joseph uh, and 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 then and this is where we uh, we only get the one utterance of the the name of the movie the changeling and he says you know you you were substituted in and that changeling was you and we see that the senator he's like oh my god I don't know why he wouldn't say, well, uh, maybe I'll talk about this in, at, the, at the very end where we talk about maybe some things that happened that didn't make sense a little bit. So the senator basically figures, oh, this is some blackmail thing. He's like, all right, how much, you know, how much for you to, you know, do I got to pay you to just leave this stuff alone? And then John, again, is kind of like, this isn't a bribe. I'm not here to do this, you know, um, and, and then the guy's like, I've been dealing with crackpots like you my whole life. And, da, 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 da. and then John says, the truth scares you. The truth hurts you or something like that. And then he takes out the metal and he puts it on the senator's desk. He also takes out uh, a copy of the documents of, I, I assume these are things maybe from City Hall, maybe the well, maybe a bunch of other stuff that he has. And he says, these are copies of documents that I have, gives them to him. And then also takes out the seance tapes and puts it on his desk and says there's no other copies of these tapes and then he's like you know do with this what you will and then he's going to walk out and the senator's like you know don't you know i won't have you uh slander my father and a little bit prior we see that you know when john laid out the story he's like you know my my father didn't murder anybody he was a good man. He was a loving man. He was a, a kind father. You know, he was a great man. You know, as when John and then John is, is leaving, he's like the, the senator says to him, if you breathe a word of this, you know, you'll wish you were never born type thing. You know, you'll be sorry about it. And so in here, it it makes me wonder. It's the same thing that Claire had wondered, like, did he does he know for sure that he was substituted or was it a thing where maybe he wasn't exactly 
you know, a six years old, just because spirit Joseph, when he was murdered, was was six. It could have been that this guy was maybe, you know, four or five, but he just kind of looked like him. And, and maybe he wanted somebody that was even a little smaller because spirit Joseph was sickly, right? So it could be that this guy has really no memories of it or and especially at his age now because he's supposed to be his character is supposed to be probably 78 to 80 years old Uh, and if we go by my theory that maybe he was four when he was adopted he he may not have any of that stuff I mean a lot of stuff that happened with my daughter when she was three and four I'll, I'll talk to her about things and she doesn't have any memory of it so and it could been that he's just been with them for so long that maybe he doesn't know that he was the changeling. Uh, and, you know, his his motivation is, I think, that he really did love his father. I think that probably his father, you know, maybe ended up that he originally was, that uh, changeling Joseph was just going to be a changeling, but maybe he grew to love him. Maybe the kid was a great kid. And, you know, maybe they had a good relationship. So, you know, that he, he grew to love him as his own son because then he gets a son that's whole and hearty and healthy and, and, uh, and they're able to, you know, to keep and do the business and all this other stuff. So John leaves and we see that the senator, when he's in there kind of by himself, he takes the metal that he has on his thing and he, he, he takes it off. He kind of tears it off of his chest. Uh, we pop back to... Claire has gone over to John's house, and as she goes up to the door, it just opens. She goes to knock on it, but it just opens. She goes through, and she's kind of hearing his voice. The voice leads him or leads her up to the main attic room, and she's like, I don't, you know, she's scared. She's like, I don't want to be in here, John. What's going on? And when she opens the attic room, that little wheelchair is up there, and it just whips around. And she, of course she freaks out and she starts screaming and she running. And you know, this is a part where it's a little hokey. Um, I think they maybe could have done something a little different. I, I, I don't know, it, but it, it does seem a little silly. So she's running in the chair, sort of chasing her, you know, rolling down the hallway. And of course there's three levels and she goes down one flight of stairs and she gets to the, to the next flight where she's going to go down and the chair kind of pushes her and she rolls down the thing and she's like screaming and the chair comes down and it's on the floor and she's like trying to crawl away from the chair, starting to go back up the stairs and John comes in and grabs her, gets her out of the house and he's going to go back in and she's like, don't go, you know, she's just, she's in full blown freak out mode and she's like, don't go back in there. Don't go back in there. He goes back in and he's starting to see all of, um, Oh, he's seeing like the chandelier is shaking. There's actual wind blowing through the house. And it's it's such a gale force that it's kind of pushing him back. He's going to go up into the attic room and he gets up on that first, you know, flight of stairs and he's going by the banister and a a door blows open and it blows. The wind blows through so hard that it, he breaks through the banister and he's hanging on and then he falls, you know, like 10, 15 feet down and he's kind of stunned on the floor. Um, and then he looks up and he sees that the stairwell, the stairway and stuff, and the banister is starting to burn. We cut back over to the senator, and he's looking at both of the medals in his hands. And, you know, he's got both of them, he's holding on to both of them, and he throws one aside and he 
takes the one that is the original metal and he puts it on the, he's got a little portrait of his father on his desk, a little painted portrait. And he puts that on there. And then you start to hear the voice of uh, Spirit Joseph and the picture starts to shake. The desk starts to shake. We cut back. Uh, John is laying on the ground. He's still stunned. And the stairway has started to burn more. And he sees the senator going up the stairs. And he's like, what is going on? John kind of sort of gets himself together a little bit. And he kind of crawls out of the house. And Claire meets him outside. She kind of helps him. They get in the car and they drive off. We see the senator is, is still going up. He goes into the attic room. And then he gets the vision. He sees uh, Richard, who was his, his father, you know, the father of original Joseph. So, so the Senator Joseph sees Richard Carmichael killing and murdering, uh, murdering spirit Joseph, I guess we'll call him, or original Joseph. And he sees the metal that's on his chest. And so I'm thinking, did the ghost or something somehow transport him? Is he actually here? Like, how did he, how did he get here? We cut back then to, you see the Senator is back in his home and the picture is shaking and all this stuff is going on. And so you see that the ghost has kind of possessed him and has shown him all this stuff. He basically, the, the realization of it is too much with this out of body experience. He has a heart attack and he dies. Meanwhile, John and Claire show up at the senator's house. They witness him being brought out in and in put into a, an ambulance, you know, with a sheet draped over him. And so they know that he's dead. We cut back to that. We see the actual, what they used to call the Chessman house or the original house where John was staying. That house is burned down to the ground. The final shot is of the ruins of the house. It pans up to the wheelchair and the, you see the music boxes there. And it pops open and starts to play. And then it pans out and you see the ruins of the house. And then you get in credits. So for me, overall, I guess, uh, if I were to ask myself, well, what do I think of the movie? What were its pluses? What were some of its minuses? I guess we could say. Also, would I recommend that you watch it? It is a movie. Again, I think it was 79 or 80. A lot of things you look at, they say 1980. But I, I, for sure, I thought I saw when I was watching the movie and the opening credits that it said 1979. Uh, but maybe I misread it. That doesn't really matter all that much. So, you know, it's a movie that is 42 years old. The acting styles are different. The stars that were in it, a lot of them came from maybe an acting school where things were kind of changing. Things were a little bit more, I would say, uh, on some of the older actors were maybe more for the stage, I guess. You know, the guys that were a little older, maybe that was just the the type of school that they that they came from. Although I will say that for the most part, the acting was pretty good. And you will recognize the guy who is uh, the police captain, Captain DeWitt. He's somebody that you, when you look at him, you're like, hey, I know that guy. I've seen that guy. And a couple others I recognized as 
sort of working actors that you would see him around, maybe in TV shows and things like that. So before we get into, I guess, the, the discussion of maybe some of the things that I liked and didn't like, we'll throw out sort of a few uh, kind of interesting, fun facts, so to speak. I did not know that George C. Scott and, oh, what is her name? Hold on just a moment. Trish Vandeveer, who was the actress who played Claire Norman. I didn't know that she, in real life, was married to George C. Scott. And they had a little bit, probably, of a May-December marriage there. Um, And I also found out a few things about George C. Scott that I didn't know. I guess he was nominated for several things. I don't really know uh, if he thought the Academy Awards and certain awards were worthless or shouldn't be handed out. I know a lot of things he he would get nominated for and he would refuse to attend the event. Some of the stuff, I think, I think there was one award. I don't know exactly what it was for. I think that he won, but never showed up to, to get it. And then shortly before he died, I think he kind of softened on stuff. I think uh, it was about maybe, and this is just according to stuff I've kind of read off the cuff, maybe in the mid eighties, he kind of started going to things. He had an interesting career. He was in a ton of stuff. And again, he was a strong dramatic actor with some of the older kind of guys that maybe came from the older school. Although there were actors that were coming up out of the sixties that were some age that, that did really well, but it seems like strong emotions, especially if it's not anger based, they had a, a tough time with things like sadness and crying, things like that kind of come off as a little hokey today. There was a, a a scene where we had talked about earlier where his, his character, John was crying and after he'd been thinking about his, the loss of his family and he, he didn't quite sell it. There is a part where the Senator is crying and again, doesn't quite sell it for me. The anger and some of the other stuff is fine. I don't, I don't get the sense that they're reading lines you know not all and some of it is, is a little hammy here and there but overall generally pretty good i would recommend the movie you know if we kind of cut to the chase on that i i think it's still worth a watch there are a lot of subtleties in george c scott's performance uh, little things that he does little expressions that he makes things like that that i enjoyed there was the smile he would get on his face when he was composing music and uh, the time where he had the uh, the music students over. If I were going to change a few scenes, um, there's also maybe the style of editing that I would have changed. And there were some scenes where you didn't, uh, that I think you probably could have cut and it wouldn't have affected the story. As far as just overall storytelling, it does a pretty good job, but... And, I, and I'm sure this probably is not, that wasn't the goal of the movie or maybe the goal of the story. But I thought some, there were some instances where they sort of just show up and you're like, well, how did they get here? How would they known about that? Or that seems odd that they would be able to get this information. There were certain scenes where you probably could have maybe done without some of the scenes with uh, Mrs. Gray where where he goes over and that's where the old well is and then 
you know, they do some of that. You know, you could have had it been where it was. I think you could have gotten the same effect and it could have been an abandoned property. Although it does show that the spirit, you know, when, when, uh, the spirit of Joseph is trying to communicate with the girl and getting them to allow doing what he needs to take, uh, what it takes to have the ghost maybe get peace or revenge, that type of thing. I would have liked to have seen, and again, this, this isn't this probably the story that they were telling, but I would have liked to have maybe a little bit more with the Senator. He comes across as sort of a villain, kind of a villainous character, but even within the story of the movie, let's say that he was, and I talked touched on this briefly. Let's say that he was six years old when all this stuff happens. He, he basically hits the lottery from his perspective. He is in an orphanage back in the 1900s, early 1900s, which is probably not the best place in the world. In a way he's another innocent. And you could say, does he even remember this stuff? Especially, you know, I had mentioned perhaps they got him at, they, they picked a four year old because he would have been small, like, uh, original Joseph, you know, as, as a little, as little changeling Joseph, he would have, uh, maybe he doesn't have any of those memories or, or as an 80 year old man, maybe those things are, you know, from a 78 to 80 year old guy, maybe those things have been blocked out by him, but I would have liked to have seen maybe make him. And again, I hesitate to call him the victim and I'm wondering, and I, and maybe you guys, if you've seen it, do you think, and that would be the main question I would still have, was he ever aware of it? And I, I still, I, in my interpretation, I don't think he was just because of the reactions. And what I would have liked to have seen is have that where you take away some of the ambiguous nature of it and you make it where this, where when he's confronted with it, he's like, you know, what are you talking about? I wasn't changed out. You know, records are, are weird from back then and stories were weird from back then. You know, my dad told, my father told me I had this and we went over there and I had this miraculous cure and that's kind of all I remember. I would have liked maybe to have some more of the concept of the restless spirit that the, that the spirit, while it can uh, interact, what we'll say in our world, a lot of times, and especially in, in certain uh, Asian stories and, and that I've watched, the spirit just wants what it wants. And there's not necessarily a, um, a moral or ethical side to the, to the spirit or the ghost or whatever, you know, you're looking at, it just says I was wronged and I need to be made right. And so, uh, the spirit, when it sort of took its revenge on changeling Joseph as an old man, you know, once it, I guess maybe it got freed up and could get more power. It, it's almost like it's one of those things of a vengeful spirit. It, it says, you know, you, maybe even through no fault of your own, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't make that judgment. It says you usurped a position that I should have, that I should have. And therefore you should be, uh, you'll be punished for that. You know, I don't know. I guess you could interpret it on another level of maybe the vengeful 
or the the spirit Joseph was showing changeling Joseph, hey, you know, your dad isn't who you thought he was. And even though he was good to you, he murdered me. And maybe the purpose of ghost Joseph was to just expose him to the truth. And changeling Joseph just couldn't handle that. And, you know, being older and, and you know, it, the, the shock of all that stuff and the shock of the knowledge and the shock of the experience, basically, it it ends up killing him. So anyway, those would be maybe some of these uh, alternate uh, things that I would like to see or maybe like to see some some things added or taken out. If I were going to, you know, give examples of uh, maybe a couple other things that were could be taken out. They had some scenes with Claire that you probably could have gotten rid of, although because she's George C. Scott's wife, that's probably not going to happen. They're going to, uh, things that maybe have ended up on the cutting room floor, you could have gotten rid of. Uh, also, the whole the whole plot of her having her mother, I don't know why that character never ever needed to be brought into it at all. The only thing would be maybe if, if maybe the original story, let's say if she's supposed to be 18 or 19 and he's supposed to, you know, be a really young father or something like that. Or maybe she's, you know, still kind of lives with her, her mom and, you know, he's not that much older than her. I think, uh, that will maybe do it. I'd love to hear if you've seen this, uh, movie or if it's something that sounds interesting to you. I got this from Netflix because I still get the discs. I don't even know if they, if you can get on a plan with discs anymore, uh, but I still get the DVD sent out. And a lot of times you can't find this stuff on streaming or there's such a proliferation of streaming services to where it's not just, let's say like Hulu prime and, and uh, Netflix anymore. There's shutter and there's paramount and there's Disney and there's all this other stuff. And they all kind of have, you know, got, they all want to get their own sort of piece of the pie. So a lot of times it's hard to find this stuff. Uh-huh. But if you have seen it recently or if you saw it a long time ago, go ahead and call in. Let me know what you think, uh, 206-745-2731. Or you can send over to thearmedape at gmail.com. You can do your own recording, send it to me, or you can, I'll play it for you on the show, or you can write an email and I'll read it out. Well, I hope to hear from you guys and hopefully... This will turn out to be kind of an okay thing, and it won't be too rambly or too long or something like that. But uh, anyway, like I said, hope to hear from you guys, and I will talk to you guys next time.